Um, the sermon for tonight is from Genesis chapter 28, uh, verse 16 through 17. So if you have uh, your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible underneath the seat. Go ahead and grab that. I'm not sure what page number that would be. If anyone knows where that is in the 23? Sweet. Page 23 in the Pew Bibles. I'll give you guys a moment to turn there. Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 through 17. Genesis chapter 28, verse 16 through 17 reads, When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that we would see you more clearly, that you would soften um, hard hearts and help us to be moved in affection for you, that we would be convicted, comforted, and drawn to you so we can love you and glorify you more. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in this text, um, just reading it, that verse, it's kind of hard to understand what's going on without a good amount of context. So briefly, um, before chapter 28 and chapter 27, um, Jacob basically steals Esau's blessing deceptively, and then Esau wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob flees uh, Beersheba, and he, ends, and he heads towards a different land to flee his brother Esau, who's trying to kill him. So that leads us to chapter 28, verse 10. So we're right there. Just go up a few more verses and read along with me. Uh, chapter 28, verse, starting in verse 10. It says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place. So pause real quick. That's, this is now going to explain why he, he was afraid and he was aware of the Lord's presence being in the place, is what happens here. Verse 12, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you <clears throat> and, and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So the main message of the passage is seek God's presence in the person of Jesus with the people of Jesus. Again, that's seek God's presence in the person of Jesus with the people of Jesus. Now, uh, the three main points that kind of lead to that main message, it's not directly in the text, but we'll get there. It'll kind of build and aim towards that message. The three points is God's presence was in a geographical location. In this text, God's presence was in a, geograph was in a geographical location. Second point is that God's presence, 
causes reverential fear. God's presence causes reverential fear. And the third point, God's presence is ultimately in a person. It's not in a place. God's presence is ultimately in a person, not a place. So the first point, God's presence was in a geographical location. Um, so if you have been a Christian for any length of time, um, or even if you haven't been a Christian for a, at all, or you're not a Christian right now, um, one of the attributes of God is God's uh, omnipresence. And what that means is that God is everywhere all the time. So whether you're on the top of Mount Everest, whether you're on the bottom of the ocean, God is there. You can't escape him. He's everywhere. doesn't matter where you are at any given point in time, God is everywhere. Um, God, in this instance, in our text, actually reveals himself uniquely in a specific geographical place. Um, the place he actually flees to, Jacob, he's in Luz, which he renames to Bethel. Um, God comes to Bethel and establishes a connection between heaven and earth by setting a staircase or a ladder from heaven to earth, where angels are coming up and down, and God is standing there next to Jacob. So this, this isn't speaking to his omnipresence, it's speaking to a particular point in time in history where God decided to come down to earth, to, to make him, his presence known to humanity on earth. This isn't an everyday occurrence um, during this time. It's not like there's random places all over the world where God is just building ladders and coming down with angels and talking to people. Uh, as far as we know in God's word, he's coming specifically to Jacob in Bethel. So he's not, uh, not only was it limited in a geographical place, but his presence was limited in its span of time. Okay, so that's the first point. In this instance, it's limited to the, a certain geography. Uh, point number two, God's presence causes reverential fear. So this kind of brings up the topic of the fear of the Lord. Um, anyone here been going to the fear of God? Uh, is it on Wednesday nights? Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So that's something we're just getting started in terms of talking through and working through. Um, so this text also kind of brings to light that topic, the fear of the Lord. For some of us, when you think of the fear of the Lord, um, does anyone have a verse or a, something that comes to their mind when they think of the fear of the Lord? Proverbs? Fear of the Lord is beginning with wisdom. Mm -hmm. Is there any other examples or maybe any other, maybe not explicitly, but any other things that make you think of the fear of the Lord, if anything? Maybe just me. What's that? Burning bush. Burning bush. Yeah, when uh, God <clears throat> reveals himself to Moses and comes down and, and talks to Moses through the burning bush. Exactly. Isaiah, that's where my mind was, at least. Isaiah. Um, so there's a lot of passages in Scripture that bring up that topic. Um, when I first think of it, I think of Isaiah 6. Um, and that's where God is uh, high and lofty on his throne. And there's seraphim, angels, that are proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is terrified. And his response is, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm amongst the unclean people. I've seen the king. And he's just terrified. Um, and th this is, that is an example of the fear of the Lord, is, is a, uh, almost a terror or a fear of him. Um, while that is a true fear of the Lord, I think in Genesis 28, it's showing a different facet to the fear of the Lord. Um, go ahead and look up with me to verse 13. I'll kind of explain what I mean there. Um, instead of being on a throne with angels proclaiming holy, 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 uh, the Lord is, it says, verse 13, the Lord was standing there beside him. And then 
as he's standing there beside him, he starts to reassure him of all of his promises and everything he's going to do and everything he promised to do for him. Um, now, that, depending on what version you're reading, the CSB says the Lord was sitting there beside him, Jacob. Uh, the ESV or other texts say the Lord was standing, the, uh, standing above the ladder. In either case, uh, the point here is clear is God is coming down to earth and he's, he, he wants to be present with Jacob. That's what God's doing here. He's coming to Jacob. So instead of uh, an exalted, terrifying view of God, it's um, an intimate and close view of the, the fear of the Lord here that we're seeing. God's always infinitely glorious and holy. However, he reveals his varying degrees of his glory, or he reveals his glory in varying degrees uh, to different people as he pleases in his wisdom. So here we're seeing him desiring to be among Jacob in Bethel. So it evokes the fear of the Lord in Jacob. But what is the fear of the Lord? Uh, John Bunyan, he's author, uh, he's a Puritan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, would describe the fear of the Lord like this. He says, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God. Nothing can lay a stronger obligation upon the heart of God than a sense of, or hope in, mercy. So in this instance, where Jacob, and we have to consider the context here, Jacob is full of fear. His, his brother Esau is trying to kill him. It's probably hard for him to sleep at night. I mean, he's sleeping on a rock. That's the first thing. But the second thing is there's someone trying to kill him. He's most certainly full of fear. And he's scared of Esau. He's not scared of God. But it's in that exact moment of, of Jacob being full of fear of man that he comes to, <clears throat> he comes to Jacob and, and stands next to him and reassures him of his promises. Um, he really expresses his love and his kindness and his mercy towards Jacob, which produces a godly fear in Jacob. Um, not that God couldn't have stood on his throne and had seraphim proclaiming holy, 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 but God in his kindness and his mercy, knowing Jacob, comes to him and stands, stands next to him and says, I'm the Lord. I'm the God of your father. I will give you the offspring, the land that which you're lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread out towards the north, east, west, south. You're going to be blessed, and I'll watch over you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I'm not going to leave you until I've done what I've promised you. The Lord stands next to him and reassures him of these promises. So we get a picture of God's kindness towards Jacob as he is consumed with fear. And you see later on as you read Genesis, we won't read that, but he later wrestles with God. But over time, you see him even growing in the fear of the Lord and his trust in the Lord's kindness to him. <clears throat> and his Esau is really big and God is small. But after this experience of God condescending to him and being amongst him, his fear of Esau begins to shrink and his fear of the Lord begins to grow. That's really the Christian life. Um, it's not an instant where we fear man and then we become a Christian and now we fear God and we never struggle with the fear of man. There's a reason why it can be so hard to share the gospel. We care way too much about what people think. Um, in the book uh, that uh, you got, we're going to be going through, uh, When People Are Big and God is Small, by Ed Welch, there's actually an example he brings up in that book where uh, a lot of people would say, 
oh, I, I'd love to die for Jesus. Like, I'll die for him. You know, even if, uh, you know, someone comes after me for my faith, I'll die for him. And he would say a lot of people probably are more willing to do that than to share the gospel and be shamed by people because we fear man so much. We don't want to every day deal with people not liking us. But if there's one moment where we just have to tough it out and obey God, we can do that. But God often doesn't call us to, he might call us to something like that. But generally it's going to be us fighting the fear of man with growing and walking in the fear of the Lord. And the way we grow in that is understanding a deeper sense of God's love, kindness, and mercy to us. And we see this here in God coming to Jacob amidst his fear of Esau. So it leads us to our third point. God's presence is ultimately in a person. So Jacob experienced the presence of God in Bethel with the connection of heaven and earth being a ladder or a staircase. Um, if you remember in Ross's sermon this morning, John chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, verse 51, um, Jesus was talking to Nathaniel. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. Nathaniel marveled that he had saw him and knew him. And Jesus' response to his being bewildered was, hey, like, that's, that's nothing. Truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending. Now, that sounds exactly like Genesis because it is Genesis. He's referring to Genesis 28. But instead of the angels ascending and descending on a ladder or a staircase, he says, you'll see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what's Jesus doing here? <clears throat> He's saying that, yes, there was a moment in time when uh, God came to Jacob on a ladder with angels ascending and descending on a ladder. But he's saying, now that I'm here, the son of God, I'm the ultimate connection between heaven and earth. If you move towards heaven, you move on Christ. You don't climb up a ladder. You can't earn your way up to being close to God. You have to move through Christ. And if God's gonna move closer to earth, he moves on Christ. He moves through Christ. He condescended to us in the person of Christ. 100% God, 100% human, or 100% God, 100% man. Jesus, the God-man, is where people now experience the presence of God. Not in a geographical location or finite uh, point in time like in Bethel. In a sense, there's geography linked to it, but I'll get to that at the end. So Bethel was really a faint foreshadowing of God making an eternal and permanent connection between heaven and earth in his son. Jesus gives us access and deep intimacy with God. Jacob was privileged to have God come to him and for him to be able to be in the house of God and to see the gate of heaven. And as Christians today, if you're in Christ, we have that privilege every moment, regardless of where we are, whether we're in Bethel, whether it doesn't matter where we are, what our circumstances are. We, through prayer, as with Jesus as our mediator, have that blessed privilege to commune with him at any time. So if you want to experience the presence of God, I think everyone in this room would say they want to, you don't need to go to Bethel. Um, I think going to Israel would be awesome. I would love to go to Israel, take a history tour guide trip and see the different places where Jesus did his ministry. I think that'd be really cool. You don't have to do that. And actually that's not even God's means of, or intended means for us to experience his presence. It's not about a geographical place. 
Jesus is where we experience God's presence. God's presence also isn't a feeling. I know this has been mentioned before, but our church has gone through a lot of trials. Um, it just makes me sad thinking about uh, <clears throat> all the miscarriages and I don't know why I'm getting so emotional. I don't even have any kids. <laughs> but it's, you're my family, you know? And uh, I know from different trials that um, it can feel like God isn't present in trials. <clears throat> but thankfully, God, God's presence isn't based on what we're feeling. Except God's word actually says God is near the brokenhearted. It's actually the opposite. He's not far at all. Those are people he's drawn to. He's near the brokenhearted. Praise God for that. And oftentimes, we don't grow in our faith and in our fear of him until we have tri significant trials that make us question whether he's near. <clears throat> but the reality is, is he is near. And not only is he near... We see with Jacob, God has given him a bunch of promises. We have a bunch of promises from God as well in Christ. They're all over the Bible. I'd love to just go through all the promises of God, but that would take forever because there's so many. And we have all of those promises in Christ. Every single one of those promises is ours if we're in Christ. And although we don't experience primarily God's presence in a geographical place, if we're in Christ and everyone, every Christian in this room is in Christ, then we're all in the same body. And the way God designed it was for him to um, establish local um, gatherings of Christians all around the world to worship him in local churches under Christ's rule. So if you're a Christian, just like Ross uh, explained this morning, if you want to experience God's presence, we need to gather with other Christians and experience Christ together. That's by design. It's not meant to be a unilateral individual experience with God. There's no such thing as a Christian that can have deep intimacy, intimacy with God without intimacy with other Christians. And God promises to be present with gathered Christians, as it says in Matthew 18, that he's there amongst us as we're together and as we gather. So if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't actually have Christ. You don't get the benefits of Christ, the promises that um, are in Scripture, nor do you get God's presence. God's omnipresent but you won't get a uniquely intimate relationship with God. The good news is, though, is you can have God's presence. God is holy. That's the problem. God's holy. We're not. The reality is, is even if, you, even if you've been really good your whole life, <clears throat> even your best deeds, the Bible describes as filthy rags compared to God's holy righteousness. You don't have to be a certain kind of person. Some people are naturally really nice. Like I've met some people and they actually convince me, they're like, man, I'm not that kind. Uh, and they're not Christians. But even that kindness doesn't save them. It doesn't make them right with God. <clears throat> no amount of goodness can be sufficient to satisfy God because God's perfect and holy. So we've all fallen short of the glory of God, no matter your background, no matter your history. But the good news is, is that God sent Jesus, his perfect son, who lived the perfect life that we 
were supposed to live but could not, lived the life of perfect obedience, and died the death that we should have died, and took on the wrath of God for the sin that we deserve. God, Jesus feared God perfectly. He walked in the fear of the Lord joyfully and perfectly, took on the wrath of God that we deserve, but he didn't just die. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave, conquering death and ascended to heaven so that all who repent of sin and trust in Christ can receive the free gift of salvation and receive Christ's righteousness and be united to Christ and receive all of his benefits, his promises, and be a part of the church body. And the only prerequisite to receiving this grace is recognizing that you need it. It's not, how can I cultivate enough repentance or feel like I'm repentant enough? You can never be repentant enough. No one is. <clears throat> Come to Christ. Your sin is what qualifies you to receive grace. We have to acknowledge it, repent of it, and come to him. Just come to him, cling to Christ, and trust in him for your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus, for his perfect life. Lord, we thank you for all of your promises, for your word, that you didn't hide from us, but you revealed yourself to us. We pray that as we go out this evening, that we would seek your presence in Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.